Al Jazeera Podcasts. Today, two years since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Ukrainians are waking up to a harsh reality. We are outnumbered and outgunned by Russian forces. With around half a million dead and wounded, we ask the question, how and when will this war end? I'm Kevin Hurton, and this is The Take. My name is Katerina Malafeyeva. I'm a journalist in Ukraine. And Katerina is also Ukrainian, and she's been following the war since Russia's first foray into eastern Ukraine in 2014. This year will mark the 10th anniversary of me reporting on the conflict. And we actually spoke to you for the first time in March of 2022. That was a, about a month after the invasion. Vladimir Putin has just addressed the Russian people moments ago, announcing what Putin called the start of a military special operation. February 23rd, 2022, the world would change over the course of just a few hours. I wonder if you could take us back to that time. Do you remember what was going through your head, what it felt like when you first talked to The Take? I absolutely remember because it was in the early morning when I received a message from Donetsk that my mom died and I had to work. Uh, we were about to go to Zaporizhia to cover the evacuation of people from the front line. Um, and yes, I received this message and I don't know, it's like with this invasion, my life, it, it's indeed split into life before and after because I had some dreams, I had some uh, plans. I had a dream to get married, have a family and bring my parents from Donetsk to help to look after the kid. It didn't happen and when I found out about mom's death, it was a devastating news for me. Donetsk, where her parents lived and where Katerina's from, is the unofficial capital of Donbass. And it was taken by Russian-backed separatists over the course of the 2014 war. So now Katerina was covering this new war, watching her dreams shatter and planning a funeral for her mother all at the same time. You know, there was no connection with Donetsk because the Russian forces suspended internet and mobile uh, coverage. So somehow I had to organize her funeral remotely. My father, I, I, he was unreachable. I couldn't get in touch with him. Oh, man. And around 8 p.m., I think that we had that uh, call with the takes host and uh, producers. Yeah. Let me know when I should start the recording of... Uh, okay. In a second, I just want to And sure uh, I are... told him straight away about what happened. She left me today so early because I'm 33 years old and I'm not prepared to be without my mom. I'm not and they suggested if I can postpone this call, but I decided that my mom would want me to do this interview. My mom would want me to be strong. Before you got on for this interview, you had some bad news. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, this morning my mother uh, passed away. This morning, this news was devastating, to be honest. Again, that was almost two years ago. You know, I think that even up until now, I didn't fully 
overcame her death. You know, I work nonstop. And then when I stop, this is the most horrible time for me because I start thinking about triggers that, that reminds me about her or about my other failures in life, which were caused by this war. Our listeners know you now. I mean, we've been talking to you for two years on and off, and they're familiar with your story and and your incredible strength. I know you were managing the death of a parent, and you possibly could have had the death of your country. Now, the difference was, as somebody who had been dealing with this invasion for 10 years, what changed two years ago is that the world really started to pay attention. I was actually surprised that the world reacted that way because we who came from Donetsk region, we we felt disappointment in the world's reaction in 2014, right? Yeah. Vladimir Putin signed the law that completes his annexation of Crimea. World leaders are reacting as President Putin reclaims Crimea as part of Russia, brushing aside international condemnation. And the world, the West, came to terms with the annexation uh, of Crimea. It was a done deal. But in 2022, the second time around, Katarina says it felt different. Um, The majority of people who I spoke in early months of the invasion told me the world is on our side. Even the soldiers, they went to sign up. As volunteers, they believed that they could stop Putin's forces soon and the war would finish soon. Mm. And I was way more realistic because of 2014. I expected that we would reach stalemate or deadlock because we are outnumbered and outgunned by Mm. Russian forces because it's a huge country with a lot of resources. I even thought that this war might even take a decade. So you're saying your experience in the Donbass region in the previous invasion in 2014 made you much more skeptical of some of the optimism that was surrounding those days in 2022. Let's switch to sort of the facts on the ground. Um, Many articles are reporting pretty flatly that Ukraine is losing this war. Now, you're Ukrainian, you're a journalist, you cover this as closely as anybody. What is your take? Is Ukraine losing this war? Technical-wise, we are outnumbered and outgunned by Russian forces. In the past two years, we haven't built the plant that would produce military equipment. You can't really build it when we are constantly poured by the Russian missiles. Russian missiles and drones raining down across the country in the worst single attack since the war began. Ukraine's government says the latest Russian barrage included more than 40 ballistic, cruise, anti-craft and guided missiles. But uh, you have to wonder what will happen to the whole world if Ukraine lose. Not a single international treaty will be worth anything after this. No country would believe in assurance that someone will protect it. No one will refuse to develop nuclear weapon. If Ukraine loses, it will not be a bitter pill to swallow. It will be a genocide and destruction of civilians. It will be the biggest pillow for for the whole world. Mm. Maybe the problem with that question is that we don't define winning and losing. We need to change our expectations because I think people who don't live through the war, maybe they think, well, if Ukraine wins, they expel the Russians completely. And if Russia wins, they invade Ukraine completely. But what we've seen is things have bogged down. There's a bit of a stalemate. Are you starting to hear people talk in different terms about what would constitute a victory? 
We want to restore Ukrainian borders of 1991 Do you think that this is enough money to potentially change the direction of the war? It's a very good help. It's a very, it's massive help. It's tremendous help, but it's still not enough. Yeah. We are in huge debt. You know, if more men will be mobilized, called to the front line, economically, we need to sustain this country. I already saw women, more women working in the coal mines because men were summoned to the front. So it's a tremendous help, but it's again not enough. After the break, how the Ukrainian soldiers Katerina knows are holding up two years into the war. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI. And I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. When we got hold of Katerina, she still wasn't optimistic that the war in Ukraine would end anytime soon. I visited uh, last weekend Kharkiv and Kharkiv region where uh, I visited the underground schools. The schools are in the subways for kids where they don't see the daylight. And for children, obviously, the daylight is important, right? They cannot study in the tunnels and shelters. Wow. The kids she met there in those tunnels hadn't had schools, any schools at all, for years, even before Russia's most recent invasion because the two years of a full-scale invasion were preceded by the two years of lockdown. So these kids, for four years, they haven't experienced any studies. And I visited the objects that are building for the pupils to study underground. And if you just think about the scale, massive shelters that can cover 400 students. If you think about it, we are building schools not for a short term, we are building them for for years. Wow. Because everyone understands that if we leave the situation like this, earlier or later, Russia would uh, reinforce the troops and they would start uh, invading again. You know, you're talking to somebody who experienced this in 2014, and here we are. They not only took Donetsk and Lugansk region, but they went forward. So let's talk about the morale on the front lines. Ukraine is trying to mobilize more troops, but it's been hard, really hard. You've spoken to soldiers on the front lines. What do you hear from them? Ukrainian troops are exhausted. I know people who haven't had a vacation for 23 months, who are always at the front line, always fighting. It's a huge exhaustion uh, 
physical and mental. And as probably all of us, we know that when you are exhausted, you don't really make the right decisions. Mm. Yeah. So majority of these men, they signed up in the first few days of the Russian full-scale invasion. They haven't seen their wives, their families. Ukraine has probably the highest divorce rate right now in Europe. Wow. The army needs... 500,000 more troops. I mean, 500,000 more troops is a huge amount of troops. Those 500,000 troops would make it one of the top 10 largest armies in the whole world. So that's a massive task to try to conscript that many new soldiers. It's a huge task. Well, first of all, the information uh, regarding how many people were conscripted is classified. But uh, I know from my sources that it hasn't been a large number. You see more and more reports in the media about some Ukrainian men fleeing the country, swimming in the rivers through the borders. It's a huge number. But if you compare it to the Russian army, where they throw Russian soldiers like a cannon fodder, well, one soldier told me at least 80, 90 percent of the Ukrainian soldiers would like to be replaced. Conscription has recently been on Ukrainians' minds. Under martial law, Ukrainian men aged between 18 and 60 can't leave the country because they could be called up to fight, and a new law is being prepared to close any loopholes. So listen, you're not only a journalist, but before the war you taught history at a school in the Donbass region, which is now under Russian control. And some of your students signed up to fight for Ukraine, and others made a different choice and joined the Russian separatists. So I'm wondering what it's like for you watching these boys you knew. Well, it's hard. You know, I remember when I was teaching kids, they were like 10 or 11 years old. It was like an introductory course into history of Ukraine and it was taught in Ukrainian. In Donetsk, the schools were in Russian, but this class was specifically in Ukrainian. And um, I remember one boy, he was in particular very interested in Ukrainian history. Years later, this boy joined the separatists. He started with small video camera. Now you can see him on the top Russian channels as a Russian propagandist. This is the wow. first example that was in particular very hard to take. And um, in August last year, I found out that another student of mine who, in fact, was not really interested in history, who didn't really listen to me that much, and I taught him a medieval history of Ukraine, I found out that he was fighting in the Parisia region. He participated in summer counteroffensive and he died. So this was really painful to understand that somebody who is like 10 years younger than you and you kind of was a teacher of him, he gave his life for this country. For him, history of Ukraine was not just a word. For him, Ukraine represented the sovereign country, you know, it's as he was so generous to really give up his life for this country. Your friends and your relatives are dying not because it's time, not because of some diseases, but they're dying from the missiles. And the life itself doesn't have any worse right now because, you know, any time, any time we can die. You might look at me right now and you think, oh, she's sitting in a pretty normal environment. But earlier last month, I was hiding 
in the bathroom mm. because I've heard the air defense on both sides of this flat. It was so scary. Even me, who covers this water for 10 years, and often on the front line, I was scared because, in a way, when you go on a reporting trip, you know the places where you can hide. Mm. You know where you can, like, find the cover. At home, when you live on the 15th floor, you're pretty much a target yeah. for any missile attack. This is even horrible to think about, you know. And then you, after all these missile attacks, after they finish, you go on reporting by yourself. You you just lived through two hours of uh, constant attacks, and then you go and do some stories, uh, radio, TV, or print about somebody who was not lucky as you were this morning. This is like... I don't know even how to describe it. Like a Russian roulette, you know? Yeah. The day after that missile attack on the 2nd of January, the next day I went to cover how people were skiing in uh, Kyiv. You can just rent uh, the ski equipment and do skiing. And it was so surreal because I thought, oh my God, I've just yesterday covered the completely destroyed house. People without flats, without cars, without accommodation. Now I see people skiing. And one woman told me, and I remember her words because they struck a chord with me. She said that I'm very happy to see the smiles of people outside because all of them, same as me, they managed to pull themselves out of the houses, overcome the depression and smile to each other. I'm happy to see all the smiles because people are living in the same reality as I am. Of course, she said, when I drive past the buildings that were destroyed, of course, I think about the destroyed lives. Of course, I think about destroyed destinies. But after that, I think about what I can do to live. And that's really a kind of a strong accord with me because we're living under the same sky that is plummeted with Russian missiles. It's up to you how you cope with it. Whether you can be in a depression or you can do all the possible efforts to brace yourself, live your life and do what is required from you to do to win this war as soon as possible. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Khalid Sultan, Amy Walters, and me, Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal, with Miranda Lynn, Nagin Oliai, Sari Al-Khalili, Ashish Malhotra, Sonia Bagat, Faranisa Kampana, David Enders, and Chloe K. Lee. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Joe Plord mixed this episode. Alex Locke is The Take's executive producer. And Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. Mm-hmm.